Thank you, worship team. Those are great songs. I know you had some technical difficulties up here, but that was secondary, wasn't it? The songs were great, and we were able to worship the Lord together. Hallelujah. Hope you had a good week. I spent a few days with three grandchildren. My wife spent most of the time. The rest of the time I was hiding. (laughs) They wore me out though. They'll set my Bible over here for a second. Well, this morning I wanted to share a message with you and it's called The Great uh, War with Amalek. I called it the battle and then I realized it is not a battle. (laughs) It's actually a war. Today I want to share a message with you that I believe will help you out. If you're a young person, teenager, young adult, there's a battle that goes on within your heart. It rages on one hand. There's a part of you that loves Jesus and wants to serve him. On the other hand, there's something that keeps dragging you behind. And uh, if you don't get a handle on that solution to this war that's going on within you, When you're younger, it can ignite and cause problems for you when you get older. So we're going to talk about that uh, today. Back in the uh, barbaric days of the Midwest in Canada, in Winnipeg, they uh, did a little bit of betting on some animals that would see who would be the strongest. So they had a couple of bears, and they put them in cages about this far apart, and they left them there for... A few days, they fed one, the smaller one, and they didn't feed the uh, the larger one. And so then, of course, they would wage bets on after they lifted the gates, these bears automatically wanted to fight each other. And so, of course, they everybody placed their bet on the larger bear, right? And, of course, what happened was the stronger one, although it was smaller, defeated the the larger bear. I know that sounds so barbaric, especially in this day and age, but that's true. It's a historical fact of what happened. Today, I want to talk to you about the battle that goes on within each one of us. I might ask the question to you today, why do Christians fall? What happens? What happens to people that are serving the Lord for some time and all of a sudden they just fall away? They fall into sin? Is it the devil? We blame it all on the devil. Is it the world and its attractiveness? Or is it the old sinful nature? Well, today I'd like to say, yeah, the devil can be blamed some of the time. And yeah, the world has its enticements. But the battle that I want to talk about today is the old sinful nature, or as we call it, the flesh. There's a poem that was written a while ago. It says, two natures war within my breast. One is evil, the other is blessed. The one I, <laughs> one I love, the other I hate. The one I feed will dominate. <laughs> so true, isn't it? James chapter 1 When talking about temptation, to to just let the devil off the hook a little bit, James said these words, When you and I are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
But everyone here, me included, is tempted when by their own evil desire, they're dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, had this baby, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. James said that's how it happens. So let's not blame the devil every time something goes wrong. There's an, I think it's Alexander Pope that said this many years ago, sin is a monster of such awful mean that to be hated, you just have to see it. To be seen, just has to be seen. But seen too often, familiar with face, we first endure and then we pity and embrace. Imagine that. Sin. If we, if we tolerate it. It says, sin. Seen too often, familiar with your face. You first endure. Then you pity and then you embrace. I remember coming out of Bible college after about four years of being abstaining from television. And before that, I didn't watch much anyway. And all of a sudden, I decided, and if we were married for a little while, let's get a TV. And so we started watching TV. And all of a sudden, I thought, whoa, what kind of evil is this? But I like the TV shows, and I like the hockey game, so I endured. <laughs> and after a while, it didn't bother me as much. So it's just an example. That, that's kind of what this... That little poem by Alexander Pope is all about. There's a story in the Bible about a battle or a war that goes on with the people of Israel. It's with a nation called Amalek, the Amalekites. And this battle with Amalek, you may not even be familiar with Amalek, you will be before the end of this message. But this is the most significant battle of all the enemies that Israel ever fought. We pick it up in Exodus chapter 17. The people of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And it says that they were released from the bondage of Egypt. They took the blood of the Passover lamb, placed it over the doorposts of their home. And when the death angel swooped over Egypt, those that were covered with the blood of the Passover lamb the eldest of their family survived and all the rest. And then there was this big exodus. That's what the book is called, Exodus. Out of the land of Egypt, and now the people of Israel that have been saved by the blood of the Passover lamb are now in the desert. And they start grumbling. They start complaining to Moses who's led them. And uh, how quickly they forget. And they said, we're thirsty. So it says in Exodus chapter 17... All the, peop all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out, in, out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What should I do with these people? <laughs> They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel 
and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and it parted, and then go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, the Lord is not busy with us or not. Then Amalek, then Amalek appears. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as the Lord, or as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur stood up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses' hand, whenever Moses held his hand up, Israel were winning, where they were prevailing. And whenever he got tired and lowered his hand, Amalek started to prevail. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. He didn't kill them all. He just overwhelmed them. And the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial. Imagine the battle has just been won with Amalek. And he says, this is a memorial. You write this down, Moses. And this is what he said. And recite it in the ears of Joshua, because Joshua is going to actually succeed Moses and lead the people, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He said, write it down, Moses. Tell Joshua, I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called the name of the Lord of it, the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi, saying, the hand, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And there's a little bit more to the story than that. But the battle that Israel had with Amalek that day is a picture or an illustration of the battle that goes on within every believer's heart and life between the old fallen nature and the new nature. Jesus Christ living in this. This battle is ongoing. It didn't end back in those days. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, and he said to them in Galatians 5, For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature, they're in conflict with each other, so that you don't know what you want. But the battle can have its victories, Paul said to the Galatian believers, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, you will not satisfy the desires of the sinful nature. You know, when a person becomes a believer, is born again, there's a number of things that happen to them, often unexpectedly. Battles that they had fought for years are all of a sudden broken. (laughs) And God has done something special for them. And I was surprised and all the things that I held on to that were addictions and things, how they were broken. There was no interest in those things. It was a surprise to me. It was wonderful. 
old battles that I had fought for years were now no, more, no longer a battle for me. However, I did discover that there were new battles in these three areas of my life, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that I hadn't experienced up until that point in that way. C.S. Lewis said he was surprised when he was in the upper level of a, a double-decker bus and uh, quietly, under his breath, he asked Jesus into his heart and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came into his heart. The presence and person of Jesus Christ saved him and he said, I was surprised by all the joy that I... He'd never felt joy like that before. That battle was one for him. So others people say, I was surprised as well. And they say, my night turned to day. They say, my chains fell off. They say, my burdens were lifted. Some people are surprised, but just how awful it feels to sin. Others are surprised by this new desire not to sin. Some are surprised by a peace that floods their soul right down to the very depths. Hallelujah. Some people are surprised and overwhelmed that God has this individual, personal love and concern for them. Some people are surprised that they now have a wonderful desire to read this book. It's life to them when they give their heart to Christ. Some people are surprised they want to go to church, something they didn't want to necessarily do before. They discovered, surprise, this thing they call fellowship, koinonia, this, this brother-sister family of God thing. Others are surprised by the courage that they have now, the lack of fear that they have about death, about the future, about life. It's wonderful to be born again, isn't it? Jesus Christ gives us so many wonderful victories. Others say creation is just so beautiful. It looks so wonderful. See, there's a lot of wonderful things that happen to us when we give our hearts to Jesus. Battles are one that we fought for years. However, like I said, there's new battlefronts, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In 1 John... John writes to the Christians and he says, don't love the world. If anyone has the love of the world in them, then they don't have the love of the Father. He says, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boastings of what he has and does come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but a man who does the will of God or a woman lives forever. Amen? That's the promise, the world. (laughs) And then, of course, James also says this about the devil. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. So the world and the devil are there. But today I want to just share a message with you that's practical. It's, it's where the rubber hits the pavement. It's not theoretical. This is very practical. It's very real. And if you can get a handle on the truth that's here and apply it to your life, you are going to live a victorious Christian life like you've never lived before. Amen? I hope so. (laughs) There's this battle that goes on. I haven't even got to your notes yet, but the notes will go fast. Don't worry. There's a, there's a saying in the comes from the Bible, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, how we have been affected by the fall of mighty men and women of God who in their latter years fell into sin or the sin became something that was public. It happens. Now, 
one of the reasons we are so shocked and surprised is probably because of the teaching that we received about being born again, what it means to be born again. Many of us were told when Jesus comes into our heart, he, he gives us a new heart. I just want to maybe shatter some of those ideas. Jesus doesn't give me a new heart when I get saved. The only place it talks about Jesus giving a new heart is the people of Israel. In the latter days, the days in the future, he says, I will, I will write the laws in your heart, I'll give you a new heart. That's talking about something different than being born again. If God changed our heart when we became born again, then we would have complete victory over the devil and sin. Arthur Pink points it out in his book, The Gleanings of Exodus. He says, God doesn't change things, anything. The old is just set aside or destroyed and something altogether new is created. Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Then he says this important thing that I think is on screen. New birth is not the removal of anything from a person or changing anything within. It is the impartation of something new. New birth is the reception of a new nature. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, he says in his book. What he says makes sense because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, speaking about being born again and becoming a believer, it says no one who is born of God, continues sinning because God's seed remains in them. He cannot go on sinning as long as he keeps feeding that plant that's been there because he's born of God. Peter also said this in 1 Peter 1, you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So the Bible says, when I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, he did not kill my old nature. He left it there, but he planted a seed, a new nature. And now we've got two things going on here, whereas before one dominated all the time. So I have this war that's going on. The sinful nature remains in my life today, and it will not be annihilated until I die or Jesus comes, right? It says, when in the twinkling of an eye, the Lord shall come with a loud shout of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, then everything that's perishable, like my old sinful nature, is going to perish. Amen? Etc. So let's look at this battle with Amalek. I know some of you are thinking, okay, what is he teaching us today? What do you mean I don't get a new heart? Well, let's see. Who is this Amalek anyway? He just kind of appears for the first time in the Bible, at Rephidim, when the water goes forth. Amalek is a grandson of Esau. Well, then you say, well, who is Esau? Esau and Jacob were brothers, and uh, God had chosen Jacob. But Esau was the oldest, so his parents decided, Isaac and Rebekah said, well, we have to give the blessings to Esau. Esau represents that old sinful nature in some ways. Because he came in from the fields one day, and he was so hungry, Jacob the conniver, his brother, said, well, I'll make you something to eat. Just 
give me a little bit of time, but you'll have to give me your birthright. So he gives up his birthright for a stinking piece of bread and food. That's the kind of person he was. He sold his birthright just to satisfy his flesh. That's who Esau was. The grandson of Esau is Amalek. In his very name, Amalek means warlike. Okay? So Amalek is a war, warrior. An apt name when you consider what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you among, along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, They met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. My old sinful nature has no fear of God. (laughs) Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. There is that war. So Amalek's name means warlike. He is the grandson of Esau who sold his spiritual birthright for a meal to satisfy his flesh. Amalek in the Bible is the first nation to attack Israel after they come out of Egypt. First one, Numbers chapter 24 verse 20, Balaam saw Amalek and he uttered this oracle about Amalek. He said, Amalek was first among the nations, but he will come to ruin at last. Mm. I don't like that last part. I wish he would come to death earlier, but Amalek at last will come to death. Well, there was no fighting with Amalek when you were in Egypt. Didn't appear, no fighting there. While you're in the house of bondage, Amalek leaves you alone. But you come into the family of God and to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and a new nature comes within you, then all of a sudden we've got some problems. No battles in Egypt, only a few trials until they get to Rephidim, and now we've got a war on our hands. The third thing on your notes, Amalek attacks at Rephidim, interesting location. They came and attacked there. It says at Rephidim, Moses strikes the rock, and life-giving water flows out of the rock, and the people drink And live. In your notes, once the rock was smitten, once the rock is smitten, life-giving water flowed, Amalek attacked at that point. No fighting with Amalek until the life-giving water comes into their lives and hearts. It's not a coincidence. And Paul is talking in symbolic words ways to the people in Corinth and the church there. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact, brothers, that your forefathers were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual ro- drink. For they drank from the same spiritual rock and the rock that accompanied them was Christ. Isn't that interesting? The rock that gave the, this, that The rock that gave the water, the life-giving water, symbolized Christ. And Paul says that rock was Christ. Hallelujah. The smiting of the rock is like the smiting of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
The flowing water is not the blood that flowed from his side to give us life, but instead it's the Holy Spirit outpoured into our hearts that gives us life. No sooner was the water given and Amalek attacks. A battle took place. No sooner did God come and take residence up within my heart than all of a sudden this strange, unexpected conflict began to happen in my life. Until the Holy Spirit spreads his light abroad in this dark life of mine, I don't know the depths of evil that are within my heart. But boy, when he starts showing that flashlight and shows me. The battle of the two natures is clearly illustrated in the life of Abraham. He had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born the natural way. And then when everything was going the natural way, 13 years later, Isaac was born, but Isaac was born after Abraham cut off the flesh, was circumcised, he's 99 years old, his wife is 80. Like, how can you have... It has to be a miracle, right? And so... Isaac is the result of a miracle. Ishmael is born in a natural way. Galatians puts it this way in chapter 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the freed woman. As soon as Isaac enters into the house, there's conflict. There's fight. In Genesis chapter 21, it says, Sarah noticed that Ishmael and Hagar, his mom, were teasing or mocking Isaac And so she turned upon Abraham. I preached about that a few weeks ago. It says it this way in Galatians. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born in the power of the Spirit. It's the same way now, today. (laughs) Jacob's life is an interesting life as well. He has two names. One is Jacob, the one his parents gave him, his earthly parents. And then there's one that God gave him after God wrestled with Jacob one night, and that is Israel, as we know today. Some say, as they read through the Bible after this event with meeting God, the angel of the Lord, that uh, it kind of flips back and forth. One minute he's called Jacob, one minute he's called Israel. And uh, I think it's Watchman Nee, but I'm not sure, who points out this fact in Genesis. So Jacob has 12 children. The 11th born, Joseph, was his favorite, right? And his brothers sold him and uh, took his coat and put animal blood on it and told his dad that he died. And many years later, his brothers go down to Egypt. Lo and behold, he's the prime minister. And they come back to tell their dad that his son, Joseph, is really alive. (laughs) And so it says in Genesis, they told Jacob... Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned and he did not believe. And then in the verses later, two verses later, after they talked to him some more, it says, Israel said, I'm convinced. Jacob, no way. Israel, something new. Yes, yes, he's alive. I'm convinced. It also says in another place, When Jacob came to the end of his life, he gave instructions to his sons. He drew up his feet into his bed. He breathed his last and was gathered to his people. He died. A few verses later in chapter 50, it says, So the physicians embalmed, not Jacob, but Israel. Interesting, isn't it? 
at death, hallelujah, the new nature is going to be preserved. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, what about Amalek? Amalek initiates the battle. They attack Israel. Israel doesn't attack Amalek. The new nature delights to feed on the word of God, to pray, to have communion with God, but the sinful nature won't let him live at peace. So they have, Amalek has strategy. How is Amalek, the old sinful nature, going to destroy the new nature that's within us? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, or 25 verse 17, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When does Amalek attack? When you stop feeding the new nature. The old nature gets strong. And when you become weary and worn, that's in your notes, weary and worn, those who lag behind, who stay behind, they don't join in the family of God and all the activities of the life-giving church, lagging behind. Get my fingers working here. Exodus, and then Amalek, does Amalek ever get defeated? That's a good question. Exodus twenty seventeen says, uh, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua, who actually the name Jesus is Joshua, keep that in mind. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on top of the hill. And it says, as long as Moses' hands were held up, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. (laughs) And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under Moses and Aaron and Hur. Wonderful helpers. They held up the hands of Moses and Jesus won the battle. Hallelujah. Joshua won the battle as long as the arms, hands were lifted up. Moses' hands uh, represent prayer, lifted up. If we keep on praying, we must pray. We need to pray against the enemy who tries to attract. We need to feed our sinful nature, or I mean, we need to feed our new nature with the Word of God. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites. Aaron, on one side, who I think represents Jesus Christ, the priesthood, the one who daily prays for us, it says in Hebrews. He's able to completely save those who come to him through God because daily he lives to pray for you and me, intercede for us. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus is praying for you right now. Hallelujah. Jesus. It says in Revelation, another angel who had a golden scepter came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So important to pray, isn't it? Aaron on one side, her on the other. Her, his name means light, the Holy Spirit in, on, his, on his hand. You know, we don't know how to pray, it says in Romans, but the Holy Spirit himself, he will help us to know how to pray with groans and moans that words cannot express He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. 
Sometimes I don't know how to pray. But thank God I can pray in another language. I can pray in tongues. And I can pray and intercede when I don't know how else to pray. And it says the Holy Spirit will pray through me. And God will bring the victory. Amalek is annihilated. That's the good news. Exodus chapter 17 verse 14 Write this on a scroll, something to be remembered. Make sure Joshua hears it. Remember what I read earlier. Because I will completely, not I might, but I will, not I have, completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Why Joshua? Because Moses would die and the battle with Amalek would continue on. It says in Exodus 16, Chapter 17, verse 16. For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amaleks from generation to generation. That's the bad news. <laughs> In Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says, When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies that are around about you, all the other Ittites and Hittites and you know what, ites. In the land the Lord has given you to possess an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek forever. Hallelujah. Jesus is going to come someday, or I'm going to go to heaven. He's going to come, and he's going to take that old sinful nature. He's going to blot it out once and for all. The battle's going to be over, folks, and we're going to be victorious. Hallelujah. And I'm going to take that crown off my head that I don't deserve, that victor's crown. I'm going to throw it at the feet of Jesus in heaven, and we're going to have a worship time. Hallelujah. We're going to worship him who is worthy. Hallelujah. Who paid the price for our sins. Well, they did get destroyed eventually. In First Chronicles chapter 4, it says, The tribe of Simeon rose up, and they killed the remaining Amaleks. God bless the tribe of Simeon. Well, what lessons do we get today from this battle with Amalek? Well, there's about five I thought of. We recognize by experience and through the Bible that there is this ongoing, definite conflict that's going on right now in my life and yours between the old nature, sinful nature, and the new nature, Jesus Christ living within us. The second lesson I got from this passage is we recognize that God has illustrated this conflict so perfectly for us in the book of Exodus chapter 17 with the conflict between Israel and Amalek. Another lesson. We recognize that we can overcome the sinful nature by prayer and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the good news. <laughs> Amen? We recognize that if we lose that spirit of dependency upon God, the sinful nature is going to prevail. So we need to continue to have a spirit of dependency. Fifthly, we recognize that the ultimate victory over the sinful nature will one day occur when Jesus Christ returns or when I go to heaven. I've already said that. A couple of illustrations to close with with regard to the sinful nature. There was awful immorality that had crept into the church in Corinth. And Paul writes to them about this incest that was going on in this one family. And he says, do this to this man who is causing this problem. He says, I want you to 
excommunicate him. And the reason Paul said that was this, so that the sinful nature might be destroyed, but the spirit saved. So the spirit would be saved. So he was expelled. The second illustration is about a careless king whose name is Saul. It's an illustration about the old sinful nature. If we don't do our best to put it to death, it could creep up and kill us, like the Amalekites tried. It says, and Samuel said to Saul, these words, if you listen, I don't think they're on the overhead. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words that the Lord says to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is God speaking to Saul when he starts his, his reign as the first king. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote everything that they own to destruction. That was, the, that was his first big uh, marching order. Go and fight Amalek and destroy everything they have. Did he do it? Oh, not really, not Saul. He's pretty careless. Samuel said to him, you know, you were once small in your, in, in your own eyes, and then the Lord made you king and the head over all the tribes of Israel. He anointed you this king. And then he says in the 28th verse or chapter, because you did not obey the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. You have to realize the fierce Wrath God has against that old sinful nature. The Lord has done this to you today. What has he done? The Lord removed Saul from being the king. And he appointed David. It says this at the end of Saul's life. God has already told him, pronounced just judgment on you because you did not destroy everything of the Amalekites you only half obeyed. Therefore, you're no longer king. David will be king in your place, right? And so there's this final battle where Saul and his son Jonathan die. The account of this is found in 2 Samuel, the first chapter. On the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp came with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where did you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp camp of Israel. And then David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to this young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man told David these things. By chance, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa where they were fighting. And there Saul was already leaning on his sword, but still alive. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close to him. And he looked behind him and he saw me and he called to me and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Hmm. Then he said, stand behind, beside me and kill me, for, in, for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. 
So I stood behind him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. So I took the crown off his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, David, my lord, the next king. And David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. He didn't want that to happen. And so all the men who were with David also mourned. And they fasted and wept until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, who had fallen by the sword. And David said to this young man who came along with this news, Where have you come from? And he answered, I am a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him these words, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? How is it that there's something in me that would dare to try to kill Jesus who lives in my heart. But it's real. It happens. In closing or summary, God's curse is on the independent person or man. Well, get the men in this one, the women. You have to have this apply to you. Jeremiah said, Cursed is the man who, tr- who the one who trusts in man, who depends on his flesh, flesh, for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He'll be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in the salt land where no one lives. Yet God's blessing is on the dependent person. But blessed is the person or the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence and strength is in him. He'll be like a tree planted by the waters that sends out its roots to the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. It's always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So the question we have to ask ourselves today, do we want to be a tumbleweed or do we want to be a solid oak? Choice is ours. God's displeasure is in the self-reliant person or man. It says in Psalm 147, His strength is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. And the next verse says, But the Lord delights the God-fearing man, the one who fears him, whose hope is in his unfailing love. I want to just share something with you. You know the story of David and how he rose to become famous and became great in the eyes of the people of Israel. There was a battle going on, and Goliath was on one side, Saul and his men were on the other. Goliath is taunting the people of Israel. And David comes along, and eventually, without cutting, cutting through the story, basically David says, I'll challenge him. And he tries to put on Saul's armor. It's just too big for him. So he goes out with just a slingshot. He goes down to this little brook or stream, and it says five little stones he took. Remember Sunday school? And one little stone went in that sling, and a sling went around and around. And basically, he slung that stone, hit Goliath in the head. And Goliath said, something like this has never entered my mind before. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> this is a very serious part. He said, it says, the giant fell down, and Goliath was destroyed by David that day. And so there was a great victory in the camp of David that day. I want to just fast forward now. David has killed a giant. He only took one stone, but he had four other stones, didn't he? Came to the end of his days when he's getting old and frail, and he wants to still fight, but his men say, David, no, you're not fighting with us anymore. You're too old and too frail to fight, and there are four giants here that 
we need to defeat today. So David's mighty men rose up. And those mighty men rose up. One was Abishai, Sibachai, Elhanan, and Jonathan. They're mighty men. But there were four giants. One was called Ishbibinob. How would you like to name your kid that? Ishbibinob. Hope nobody here is called that. <laughs> and then there was another giant who seemed to have a couple of names, one in Chronicles, one in J. Saf or Sipai. And then there was, uh, of course, another one who was called Goliath as well. And there was another one without any name. and He, had, he was a big brute, <laughs> had six fingers. I guess that meant five fingers and a thumb. And six toes in every foot. Could really grab a hold of things, couldn't he? Well, anyway, there's this battle that takes place. And uh, I just thought it was interesting. The four giants have names that represent the battles that David had with his old sinful nature that he was overcome by. The first one's name is Ishbibinob. And Ishbibinob means my dwelling is on high. Pride. There is a story in the Bible where David suffered with pride. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21 is one of those chapters that tells a story. Pride filled his heart, and boy, did he pay the price for that. We won't go into that. A mighty man came along whose name is Abishai, and Abishai means God is alive. Hallelujah. God is alive. And the God who is alive can crush the head of that old pride in our lives every time. Another giant comes along and his name is Saf or Sipai, which means basically alternating, you know, hip, you know, hypocrisy. Did David ever, was David ever a hypocrite? Of course he was. <laughs> he wrote beautiful songs about dedication to God and then he turned around and stole someone's wife and had the man murdered. Suff struggled. And guess what? Sibachai kills him, kills this giant. Sibachai is not, does name mean, doesn't mean alternating or hypocritical. Solid. Hallelujah. Solid. Killed that old. Goliath comes along, and Goliath's name means to reveal or revile in a disgraceful way. And the man who killed him was Elkanah, whose name is Gracious. Hallelujah. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, the unnamed giant. I think his name is, or his title is symbolic of greed. And the giant killer is called giving or Jonathan. Opposite. Thank God for this little message that's here in the Word of God. I close with this illustration. When I was in Kapuskasing, I went hunting one fall. I realized for some people that's a bit of a problem, but that's the way I was raised. I went hunting, and on Trombley Road, as I turned off of Highway 11 with my cousin, I noticed in the ditch, or off the side of the ditch, there was what looked like smoke coming up through the snow. At first, I thought, well, it's just steam, because there's warm water underneath it, right? But... As I looked a little closer, I thought, it's kind of blue. Well, I put it out of my mind, and later on I was talking to my uncle who worked for the woodlands, and uh, 
for the mill. And I said, you know, when I was down on Tremblay Road, I thought I saw smoke coming out of there. This is the last week of October, by the way. They get snow up there early. And my uncle says to me, surprise me. He says, oh yeah, that is smoke. We had a fire there this fall. I thought, really? He says, oh yeah, we have a fire that's been burning for seven years. Viewing Capus Casing and Horn Payne back where they're cutting wood. A fire broke out. They take the big dozers and other heavy equipment, pile, get the fire into a big circle. And he says, in the summer, in the dry time, he says, what happens is those roots stay burning and smoldering. And in a dry time in the summer, they ignite and we have to be there, put out the fire again. Fast forward, I'm not in Capus Casing. I'm pastoring in Grimsby, Ontario, and I go to hear David Wilkerson. It's the late 80s. He's in Queensway Church, and David has a session with the leaders, the pastors and leaders, in the afternoon before he preaches, and uh, he says, before the fall of the big evangelists, he said, there are going to be some men, he said men at that time, who are big names in Christendom, in the Christian church, and they're going to fall. He says it's because they've allowed something to smolder in their lives. And as they got older and became stronger or bigger, I should say, in their name, a dry time came to their life, and they're going to be in their 50s or 60s, and a flame is going to come up, and all of a sudden there's going to be some kind of a moral failure. I'm sitting there, and I'm barely 30 years old, I think, at the time. But you know what? God spoke to me as a young pastor when I heard that. I knew if I didn't make some changes in my life, because I've been feeding that old sinful nature that that could happen to me, even though I was just young, 30 years old or so. And so I left that session. I didn't go back and hear David Wilkerson's preach. I loved to listen to him preach. But I had some business to deal with between me and God. And I remember going to the Wendy's close by Queensway and sat there sipping on a Diet Coke or something. Tears come into my eyes. People must have thought something terrible must have happened. (laughs) Well, something really wonderful happened. God spoke to me. Anyway, I'll go fast forward to Sunday. I stand to preach in my church. And after I preach, people came up and said, there's a new anointing on your life. (laughs) Perhaps there was. I don't deny it, but I'll tell you one thing. There is a power that comes with a clear conscience. Amen. And I stood knowing that I had made the first step toward dealing with that smoldering fire that was in. Ah, you know what? It's still there. I still fight it. But I've learned to feed it with prayer. I have Jesus praying for me. I have the Holy Spirit helping me. I have the Word of God guiding me. And if I, as long as I can keep my eyes on Jesus, I'm not going to fail. Amen. And neither will you. Hallelujah. Let's stand together as the worship team comes. 
I want to close with a couple of verses. In the book of Joel, it talks about people of Israel who had fallen from God, and God gives them a promise, I will restore. Amen? Some of you might be there today and said, oh, I really have blown it. God says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust. The other locusts and the whole great big army of them. (laughs) You will have plenty to eat until you're full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders on your behalf. Never again will my people be shamed. And in Micah it says, who's a God like this anyway? Who forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. The bottom line is, from Jesus' message that day to the disciples in John 15, without him, I can do nothing. Hallelujah. The worship team is going to lead us today and I just invite you to come to the front. Maybe you just need to talk to God. There'll be people here that can pray for you, but maybe you just want to kneel. That's what I did. I just knelt in my heart before God. I said, God, yikes. I'm in trouble if I don't deal with something. So it was a turning point in my life and ministry back in those days. Battle's still going on. So let's ask God to seal the word. Lord, seal the word of God in our hearts. We want your people to be free. The Bible says, he who has the Son is free indeed. So Lord, we pray today for honesty. We pray for deliverance. We pray for repentance. We pray for obedience. ask you, God, by your Spirit to minister to us. And we look for that day when in the twinkling of an eye the trumpet shall sound. We shall be changed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to come and pray and just do some business with God, I welcome you to do that. God bless you.